You know, we spent the last 50 years from when Robert McNamara brought Ford executives into the DOD and basically said, no, 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 we need cost control, we need planning. And the reason we could do that is our adversary was predictable. It was the Soviet Union. We had one adversary. Technology was moving at relatively the same speed. And so we've been trapped for the last 50 years of basically predicting the future. Well, guess what? We just woke up and we realized we can no longer predict the future. Welcome to Vital Interest. My name is Karen Greenberg, and I am the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School. Our podcast is designed to help you understand security in its many dimensions. Each week, we will bring you thoughtful voices from the worlds of policy, government, law, journalism, and advocacy. We will look at the challenges that confront us today and tomorrow, from pandemic to climate change, from terrorism to population migration, from war to peace, all with an eye towards the rule of law, the protection of human rights, and the respect for civil liberties. Vital Interest Podcast is committed to making the world we live in more comprehensible, the part we play in it more engaged, and our futures more secure. It is our way here at CNS of connecting with our times and with one another. Welcome. Welcome to today's episode of Vital Interest Podcast. Today's guest is Steve Blank, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, adjunct professor at Stanford, author of four books, most recently, The Startup Owner's Manual, and creator of the National Hacking for Defense academic course. Welcome, Steve. Welcome to Vital Interest Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you today. This is a new topic for many of our listeners. We have a number of events we do every year in the crosshairs of business and security. And I kind of wanted to know at the beginning, how did you get started in thinking about this sort of what I would call new age ways to do business in the 21st century? The short version is, uh, and probably relevant to, for some of these listeners, my, I had a couple of careers, uh, uh, four years in the Air Force during Vietnam, uh, but, but to answer your question, uh, 21 years as a serial entrepreneur. And uh, it was only when I retired that I started thinking about the nature of innovation and entrepreneurship. And, and the long story short is I realized that uh, everything that investors had told us in the 20th century on how to build new ventures was simply wrong, but no one knew what was right. And uh, I decided that I was gonna try to figure out what was broken. And eventually we built something called the Lean Startup Methodology, it's had uh, some really interesting impact on not only startups, but large corporations and now the Department of Defense relevant to your listeners, uh, which is timely given what's going on uh, in, in the world. So let's just talk a little bit about that, because what you're really saying is partly that the mindset that we need for the 21st century is different than the mindset in the 20th century. And my question is, do you think of this in terms of, you described it as the business model, but is it is it more than that? Has innovation and technology changed us so much that it's not just the nuts and bolts, but the mindset that has to be reoriented? Well, in, in multiple places, both in, in the civilian world and the DOD, the mindset has changed and, and the nature of individuals coming in have changed. And there's almost a, a huge generation gap. Uh, for example, in the DOD, you have airmen and officers coming in who know what Stack Exchange and GitHub and the rest are, and you know, 06s and above, kind of like their eyes glaze over, but they use the word innovation in, in every other paragraph, like they could buy it by the pound or the, or, or the yard. But the other thing that's common between the civilian world and the DOD is this word disruption. 
which means the normal way of business is, as usual, is gone. For the civilian world, it meant, uh, you know, the internet changed commerce, distribution channels, the value of brands, um, China as a manufacturer and as a customer. All these things radically changed uh, how commerce uh, was done and impacted almost every brand of the 20th century. Um, and what happened is companies that used to be leaders for half a century, now the average lifetime of a corporation is about 12 years, just a radical change. And by the way, let me just point out that in the national interest of Macy's goes out of business, the country still goes on. So when disruption happens to a civilian corporation, the world doesn't stop. There are replacements and, and, and sometimes mostly for the better. But when a government agency is disrupted, the country's at risk. And when it's the Department of Defense, we're all at risk. So tell us what you mean by disruption. Well, for example, you know, in the Department of Defense, uh, when Madison and Bridge Colby and the rest came out with a national defense strategy in 2018, uh, we kind of woke up to the fact that we spent the last two decades focused on non-nation states, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, et cetera. But it made pretty clear we were now facing two plus three adversaries, um, with the primary adversary being China. Well, we had just kind of oriented for decades our spending, our, our operational concepts, et cetera, against threat A, and you know, and now we face five. Number two is is that major disruption where I come from is, is in technology. I live in, and work in Silicon Valley. It used to be that you know. Most of the R&D was done by the military, and certainly the things that built weapon systems were owned and, and uh, proprietary to the Department of Defense, whether they were drones or, or access to space or cyber, etc. Now they're being driven by commercial companies. That's a big change, um, which, which means adversaries can buy this stuff off the shelf. I mean, the industries that take contracts from government have been in business for a long time. What's new now, as opposed to over the last few decades? What actually has changed? Well, what's changed is, you know, number one, the weapon systems that we're going to be using in the 21st century and not the weapon systems that we, that we depended on in the 20th century. In fact, all our legacy systems are a good chunk of them are actually albatrosses. Specifically, let's just take drones. Um, you know, those are being driven by um, commercial ventures like DJI and the rest and, and the militarized versions of those. And, and uh, you know, we're now seeing that in, in Armenia and, and that conflict that Turkish drones basically just took out those ground targets in a way that looked like science fiction. And, and cyber uh, is now, uh, you know, available to everybody. Uh, um, access to space, you know, SpaceX has put more stuff up than the, the Department of Defense did in, in 50 years. You know, just kind of pretty amazing things that are going on in the commercial uh, area. Those are available to all countries, not just the DOD. And, and if you look at existing primes, they're, I use a phrase not as a pejorative, but just to make the point, historically, they're world-class sheet metal vendors, but they're still trying to figure out software. And what I mean by that is they knew how to make airplanes and, and, and whatever, but the weapon systems that had electronics and complicated systems of systems uh, really w was hard for them. But today's contractors, the rebellions, the Andrews, you know, the new entrants were kind of born in software and, and sheet metal to them is kind of the add-on. That's a very different mindset. And it's really hard to get software 
right as an add-on. And I think Boeing is living that in multiple pro programs. And I don't mean to pick on them, but I do mean to pick on them because they're, I think, a good example of what happens, what they do own is K Street and the lobbyists. And since we live in a deep pockets democracy, they'll still have contracts for the next couple of decades. In fact, if you think about the problem is that, you know, while every weapon systems we have is tending to be obsolete, the 88 MDAPs, major defense acquisition programs, are all legacy, you know, pieces of hardware. And so while the threats have changed and disruptive technology and cyber and space and hypersonics and, you know, make, make the list are all new threats and require new weapons and operational concepts, the prime still kind of own the, the budget. And uh, it's not that people in the DOD don't realize this. It's just so far it hasn't been in their national interest to kind of pivot. So what's the remedy to sort of addressing this gap between where we are and where we need to be? Well, you know, the first thing, at least for me, was trying to understand what the heck was going on. And when I get confused, I tend to uh, write a class, meaning I want to not only teach students, but teach myself. So at Stanford this quarter, we stood up uh, a class called uh, uh, Technology, Innovation, and Modern War. And we basically focused on the impact of the series of new technologies, uh, you know, cyber, space, hypersonics, et cetera, on, on how it's changing not only weapons, but uh, operational concepts and what happened with uh, national defense strategy and acquisition and the rest. One of the required readings for the, for the class was uh, Chris Rose's uh, new book, uh, The Kill Chain. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with the book, but, you know, Chris is uh, kind of being a, a, kind of the lead staffer for the Senate Armed Services Committee, I, I think lays out not only the, the military challenges, but the but kind of the embedded and entrenched interests on both Congress and lobbyists and the primes. And they're not going to go quietly into the night. And that's fine when it's business as usual and when we have decades for kind of this change to be made. I think we're in a crisis. And what about talent? I mean, you're teaching all these young students, you know, at Stanford. I know you teach occasionally at Columbia. You've taught at places um, around the country. What about people who are into this, want to think about it? Is there a draw to government? As I mentioned, I spent four years in the Air Force and, and during Vietnam. And one of the things that I kind of carried with me for the last uh, 40 years was that we've run this major national experiment of what happens when you make national service optional. And I don't think it's been good for the country. I mean, we've had perpetual wars. Um, why? Because, you know, the, the, the elites don't have skin in the game. And therefore, gee, if you volunteer, that's your problem. Um, and I don't think it's been good for national unity. And what's really interesting, I think um, the body populace is way ahead of, uh, of our politicians who still think the phrase national service is a third rail. And when I say national service, I just don't mean the draft. I mean any form of service to, to serve the country. You know, my small attempt is we stood up a class called Hacking for Defense which allows and connects students and research universities who would never, ever consider, you know, not only any form of service of the government, but any interaction with the government to kind of work on some of the toughest national security problems that exist. And so what we do is we go out to the DOD and the intelligence community and get some unclassified 
serious problems and we teed them up for these students and we put them through a version of my class that's not only taught at Stanford, but it was adopted by the National Science Foundation called the I-Corps or, or Lean Launchpad. And um, this was adopted by the Defense and Innovation Unit and it's now in 40, maybe close to 50 universities through the US. But I think that's a small piece of what we ought to be doing, which is kind of re-engaging everybody in the country. I, th I think after this election, we're gonna need some kind of unifying theme for the country. And, and instead of talking about party, I think we should start having the conversation about country again. And this notion of service to country, um, I, I think is something that the country has been more than, than, um, than ready for. In fact, you know, I believe the day after 9-11, instead of saying, let's go shopping, that if George Bush would have said, let's do service, the country would have lined up behind him. I just hope we're, we're not having some other crisis that we can't recover from by the time we figure this out. No, but it's really interesting because, you know, if you, you think about your career and you think about this idea of entrepreneurship, it's actually taking place, which is why we're talking on this podcast, in a much larger context of where we stand as a nation in the world, what our uh, strengths and vulnerabilities are. You mentioned our national security threats, right? Is one of our national security threats not understanding the new vulnerabilities in the world, not just the new ways of understanding, you know, technologies, et cetera, et cetera, but is that also tied to new vulnerabilities that we're not addressing? Certainly as a nation as a whole, I don't think we, we understand what a serious threat China is. And because it's become so politicized as a party thing, this, this certainly this year, I think it's driving people away from what a real threat it is. You know, go ask the Uyghurs or the people in Tibet or, or now even the people in Hong Kong about China's view of, of civil liberties and, and human rights. And I don't think we want to end up there. And in Silicon Valley, you know, the Chinese have done a great drug in doing what Lenin has said is, well, you know, they'll sell us the rope that we'll hang them with. Um, you know, we're living that with Chinese investments and, and China just basically taking all our basic research and doing a great job of turning it into applied weapon systems. Can we talk a little bit about China and AI and just how you see that? I know there's been a lot of, you know, discussion among experts about Chinese stealing American technology. Is this something we should pay attention to? Or are you thinking more in the lines of everybody's just ramping up and we need to develop as quickly and as expertly as we can? You know, AI is just simply computer systems that can do tasks that normally require human intelligence, whether they sense or plan or adapt and act. And they allow us to automate vision and speech and decision-making. And, and, but AI enables, you know, autonomy you know, uh, autonomy like systems that operate virtually, you have planning and expert advisory systems, cyber where you have to react at machine speed and autonomy in motion like unmanned aerial vehicles or unmanned sub submersibles. So think of AI as kind of the electricity, you know, the things that power very smart and new classes of, of weapons. AI by itself is not a thing, but think of it as the enabler for a new class of things that are not just slightly better, that actually are blindingly better. And you have to always have a podcast where you use the word OODA loop. But AI is an enabler that would allow adversaries to get into our OODA loops in almost everything we do. And, and more importantly, it not only just qualitatively changes things, but it, it, it in fact just changes the game completely because it creates entirely new operational concepts.
You want to tell our listeners what an OODA loop is? Sure. Um, OODA is a is a word that's, that stands for observe, orient, decide, and act. It was developed by John Boyd, um, an Air Force uh, colonel and and iconoclast in, in the in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, but basically says uh, observe, get the heck out of your you know heads down environment and look around, orient, figure out what's going on around you, immediately decide, and then act. And if you could do that faster than your adversary and continually faster, then by the time he's trying to figure out what's going on, you've made, you know, 10 decisions. And and AI is the enabler for doing that faster than human beings could do that in a variety of places. By the way, we talk about new technology and that's the basis of my new class at Stanford. I just want to remind your listeners that new operational concepts obviously are derived sometimes for these new weapons. It changes the nature of war. But what happened in the South China Sea actually had nothing to do with new technology. It was the uh, dredging ships that were built in the 20th century and, and uh, yeah. see if the Americans will blink when we start you know, building on these reefs. All we had to do is park carriers, I think, uh, over those reefs and we wouldn't be faced with redoing $100 billion worth of uh, you know, existing systems. So there's new threats all the time, but the old ones don't go away. Uh, old course. vulnerabilities don't go away. So. I have a question, you know, underlying a lot of your ideas is a sense that, and you said it pretty clearly before, that the greed of business kind of gets in the way of national interest. Of course. And so the question is, do you think there's any way for there to be some kind of consciousness changing moment? Is there any, anything that could just reach out to business and say, wait a minute, how about being less greedy? You know, we've become less unified as a country in the last, certainly in the last decade or two. And I think it's, we kind of fell trapped to the, you know, we are the unipower and certainly were after the Berlin Wall fell and and, uh, dealing with just non-nation states. Our homeland never felt threatened as it did during the Cold War and and certainly World War II before. Um, And so we kind of said, well, why should we care? And at the same time, you know, business culture uh, certainly got more greedy. And if you want a metric for that, it's the gap between a CEO pay and the lowest employee. It used to be, you know, some rational number, and now it's an irrational number. And so this is where I keep going back to, it's only going to take one or two perp walks of boards of directors and CEOs of a couple of primes. And then I think they'll get the message. Or we'll be having this in a crisis where it might be too late. That's the point. We're not going to have, you know, even like in Gulf War, months to kind of stock up our supply chain or recover or whatever. These new weapon systems, stuff will happen in minutes, if not seconds of, you know, our overhead assets will disappear. Our Internet will go down or our electrical infrastructure will be attacked. And, and that's just on the civilian side, let alone what happens with, you know, Carriers might be on the bottom of the South China Sea or, or Russian troops or their proxies will be in the Baltic states. And, you know, we're not going to have time to kind of have meetings with primes to talk about national interest. And remember, the problem with existing primes is they're not bad people and, and but their motivations, which they've now had a generation to kind of be taught. And you mean, and just who do you mean by that? What entities do you mean? I'll just go through the, you know, the top 10 defense suppliers and, and again, you know, Boeing, Lockheed, Northrop Grumman, et cetera, 
you know, optimized, you know, quote, shareholder value rather than national interest value. There is no metric for your shareholders, even if you're a, a prime contractor that says, let's optimize what's great for the country. And okay, no, there's no malice involved. That's kind of the feedback loop. I think we need to change that feedback loop kind of if I were in charge. And at the same time, of course, you know, your listeners understand that the military power is just one piece of a nation's, you know, power. It's the whole dime thing, diplomatic information, military and economic power. And I'm not sure we've been doing such a great job. And in fact, in the last four years, it seems like we've kind of forgotten that that is kind of the reach of a country is the sum of all those activities. China certainly understands that with Belt and Road and their economy. And they've been waving their, they're doing what we did in the 1950s and 60s in the Cold War is exercising all those components of dying. And we just need to teach ourselves and remind ourselves that if we want to have the same type of influence in the world, and in fact, not only project democracy across the world, but protect it here at home, we're going to have to remember all those components. It's not just military power, it's, it's all the rest of them. How does your lean startup fit into this larger vision? For my career as an entrepreneur, investors essentially said, though I never heard these exact words, but they essentially said, hey, you're a startup, three people in a garage or whatever. Startups are nothing more than smaller versions of large companies. So everything a large company does, we want you to do. They write five-year plans and business plans. We want you to do that. They hire sales, marketing, engineering on day one. We want you to do that too. And, and by the way, you know, you come up with that plan. We want you to simply execute, write all the specifications and write down the plan and then hire people and execute the plan and, and give them, you know, caffeine and, and sugar and, and lock them in a room. And hopefully a year later and two later, we'll, we'll have products and services. And when those things ship, we hope you have a big enough building to put the bags of money that will obviously come. Well, we could now, you know, sit back and laugh because that's not how the world worked, but that's literally what they said. And, and I try to do that and as an entrepreneur and realize that when you try to execute a startup that way, you mostly failed. Because here's what no one had actually had articulated until I kind of said it is that, well, wait a minute, large companies at their core execute a known business model which is a fancy word for when you're large, you know who your customers are, you know your competitors, you know what features people want. So you could kind of predict the future. But in a startup, you can't execute anything. You're searching for a business model. You're just guessing about the future. So trying to use all those tools and techniques that had been developed for execution was like a divide by zero problem. It really didn't, we didn't have the right tools. In fact, no one even had the right language to describe what was broken. And what year, what years are we talking that you? Well, I retired in 99 and this, uh, I wrote my first book in 2003 called The Four Steps to the Epiphany, which kind mm -hmm. of acknowledges kicking off the whole lean startup movement. And basically the, the first thing I said, which this first book said is there's a, a major distinction between executing a known, a set of knowns versus searching for unknowns. And two is, and really important is there are no facts inside the building. So get the hell outside go out and, and do what we call customer development. And then one of my students, Eric Reese, said, well, Steve, while you're doing that, you ought to understand that the methodology for building products and services in the 21st century is no longer waterfall, which that is the way we build products was a step at a time. You know, here's the spec, here's the future, go build it, go test it, go ship it, and 
and that was the only way we knew how to build stuff. And that's how I grew up at Eric observed. There's something called agile engineering that allows us now for software and for hardware to build products iteratively and incrementally, build a step, test it, show it to people, build some more. And then the last part was something called the business model, which is a single piece of paper that says, so what are the, you know, what are the nine things that are essential to think about that you're searching for? Well, in, in the commercial case, it's who's the customer? You know, what features do they want? And, and, and that combination is called product market fit. What's the right price? What's the right way to deliver it to them, et cetera. And so this, these three things, this business model, customer development, agile engineering, the sum of these three became known as the lean startup and basically took Silicon Valley by storm. The minute you describe this to any entrepreneur, they went, well, this makes a, makes a lot more sense than what we've been doing. Let's use some version of this. Here's the big idea for the DOD. We can no longer predict the future. And what that means is, you know, we spent the last 50 years from when Robert McNamara brought Ford executives into the DOD and basically said, no, 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 we need cost control, we need planning. And the reason we could do that is our adversary was predictable. It was the Soviet Union. We had one adversary. Technology was moving at a relatively the same speed. We each tried to kind of leapfrog each other with what was called offset strategies. But essentially, you could predict the type of aircraft carrier you needed for the next 20 years or the next main battle tank or the next fighter plane. So, so let's focus on controlling costs and have processes for that rather than processes for innovation. And so we've been trapped for the last 50 years of basically predicting the future. Well, guess what? We just woke up and we realized we can no longer predict the future. We, and by that, I mean, we can't predict which one of those whole list of technologies, AI, autonomy, machine learning, space, hypersonics, there isn't enough budget on the face of the planet to field every one of those potential quantum, you know, take your favorite buzzword. And, and by the way, adversaries, it's two plus three now. Who know, Who would have thought that, you know, North Korea would have heavy throw weight ICPMs in five years? Are you kidding me? We don't have we don't have acquisition systems or planning systems to deal with what we had to deal with back in World War II. We're going through this transition period where all the organizational processes we put in for requirements and acquisition. This is a big and, and, and like mind blowing idea are obsolete and in fact are detrimental to the security of the country. And it's not that people haven't talked about this for decades. I think McCain's famous line was, you know, this was the greatest threat to our country was our acquisition system. But people couldn't articulate why and why now. And I think the why now is just simply down to that simple sentence. We could no longer predict the future, but we built an acquisition requirements and acquisition system that insisted we did. And much like the lean startup, when I came up with it, we didn't have a process to replace it. And what I'm proposing and, and some of my work and others is an innovation doctrine, which will replace it, which says, no, 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 there are maybe a couple of things that we could still predict 30 years out in the future. I think pencils probably fall into that category. But, you know, what kind of weapon systems we need to protect sea lanes or amphibious landings or project power and certainly Western Pacific can't look the same as we can before. And now we'll circle back to but if you're hunting the angles, you're going to be running ads and putting dollars into co congressional races that says, oh, you can't cut a carrier. That's blah, blah, blah. What they're really saying is we don't think we'll get the next contract for the replacement of what will replace carriers. 
but if you're in Navy, in the Navy you, and you're Hondo Gertz, you kind of figured out that the future is probably a little more diverse than having 11 carrier groups. The same in the Air Force. If you're Will Roper, you know, you kind of understand the future is probably not the B-21. And uh, though, you know, real men want to like pilot planes. Well, that's not the future. And if we can keep insisting on that, our adversaries will be happy to allow us to insist on that. But it shouldn't be driven by profits and primes. It should be driven by national interest. But now I have a question, which is about COVID. So here you are with this framework about how we really need to, to rethink the whole paradigm of what innovation, technology, and sustainable security is. And now we get COVID. There you go. You can't predict the future. And the solution to COVID relies on incredible amount of industry uh, innovation, quick industry innovation, we would hope, distribution, global cooperation. I'm just curious if in watching this transpire, you've had some thoughts along the lines of, I wish it could look like this. Or if we're going to not be able to predict the future, here's what we could have done in your realm. Here's what we could have done that would have taken account of this without taking account of the exact specifics of it. Yeah, I think this has been a dry run for uh, how prepared or not we are for unpredictable crises and the value of political leadership and national unity. And I think our adversaries have taken note and obviously through social media have um, managed to have a multiplier effect about, um, about the chaos we created ourselves. You know, I think in, in a couple of years, uh, Facebook and Silicon Valley will be thought of as Theranos, which is you're not going to want it on your resume because, you know, along with our adversaries stoking that media, it's been one of the biggest, you know, disuniters of the country. No technology company uh, starts thinking that uh, let's do evil. Um, but uh, when profits kind of get in the way, they will do evil. And I think we've seen that with social media. It turned, we believed the, the utopian view that it would unite us across the world. If you look at the original language of social media, it turns out it's one of the greatest dividers that, that we ever, uh, ever created. And our adversaries have figured out how to weaponize it. And again, this is, uh, you know, back to the class uh, we're teaching now. I've, and so we have a world-class teaching team trying to get our heads around exactly these issues and putting them on, on the plate. And I've been blogging about them on steveblank.com. And so every class session, if you want to follow along in the class, I write kind of a summary of, you know, here's what Will Roper said, or here's what General Shanahan, who ran the Jake, uh, was thinking, or Chris Lynch, who started the Defense Digital Service and Rebellion. As I said, there are multiple things that are broken at the same time, and we don't have the systems in place. And there's huge inertia for the incumbents for change and for all in their interest to all the right reasons. And uh, though I think we could see a way out of this thing if there's national will and, and, uh, and the right people kind of make moves. And I'm actually encouraged that there are people who see where we need to go. So that sort of answers my last question that I always have, but if you'd like to add on to it, you can. The last question is always, what makes you hopeful? Well, a couple of things. Um, number one is this, you know, shibboleth that Silicon Valley won't work with the Department of Defense. That's just wrong. You know, there's a 
just a large population, of, at least in the schools I teach at and have seen, who are not the ones shouting um, uh, from the rooftops, but are the ones that are willing to engage. That's number one that's hopeful, is that the, our best and the brightest are willing to help their country. Uh, number two is inside the DOD and I see that there's a, just a growing number of innovators and entrepreneurs who, who are able to work in uncertainty um, and have kind of adopted some of these tools and methodologies. The problem I've run into in every one of those organizations though, is that the organizations themselves are still execution organizations. And when you're trying to put innovation inside of execution, it doesn't work because security and policy and acquisition and whatever are designed for repeatability and scale, not for chaos and disorder. And until you actually build what, what was been labeled an ambidextrous organization, one that could execute and innovate you know, by design, you end up like frustrating the heck out of those innovators and, and they end up leaving and going into the civilian world. To me, the ultimate test is this new generation of weapon systems kind of generate hundred million and billion dollar contracts for names you never heard before. And when that happens and the major defense acquisition programs start showing up as new vendors, new concepts, new whatever, I think we'll turn the corner. Um, we're not there yet, but we're going to get there and we're going to see some change. And, uh, you know, it's going to be hard, but hopefully we'll have time. And I think that's the that's the biggest question is whether our adversaries are looking at our rate of change and whether they'll take advantage of this window of vulnerability that we have being dependent on the old style operational concepts and systems that come with it and whether they could adapt to the future faster than we can. And that's the part I worry about. Okay, so hope with worry. So your vision of technology, this is my takeaway from this podcast, your vision of technology, of defense, and all of this innovation and globalization that's come to define the 21st century, basically my takeaway is that we're not really in the future yet. We're still on our way to the future, which I guess is um, a kind of nice way to think of constructively about what we're going to do and that we're going to do things to get there. So Steve Lang, thank you so much for joining me today. And I look forward to having you back. Baron, thanks for having me here. Thank you for listening to today's conversation. We hope it made your day a little brighter, a little clearer, and a little more informed. Join us next time for the newest installment of Vital Interest Podcast. In the meantime, feel free to send us your questions at vitalinterestpodcast.org and to follow us on Twitter at VI underscore podcast CNS. And make sure to check out our daily morning brief, our weekly cyber brief, and our Vital Interest online forum at centeronnationalsecurity.org. Have a wonderful week and please stay safe.